This episode with Laverne Gordon is very powerful. She's the author of The Legacy He Left Me. And today she went into our first of two-part series on the domestic violence that she survived and then triumphed over. We wanted to make sure that you are aware before listening that there are many, many details in this story that are completely astounding, stressful, but so vulnerable, so raw. And if you are experiencing or know of someone experiencing domestic violence and you want to reach out, please reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Their number is 1-800-799-7233. Just to repeat it, 1-800-799-7233. Welcome to another episode of the Decided Heart Effect, where we pledge to have a decided heart through taking personal ownership, building high trust relationships, and creating a place and a space of belonging. This is the DH Effect. I'm Hillary. This is the beautiful Sonia. We get to be next to each other again today, and we are joined by our guest, Laverne Gordon. Laverne was brought to our attention by my husband and my 18-year-old son, Jake, who met her at an industry conference and were blown away by her powerful commitment to help victims of abuse rise from the ashes and thrive after leaving toxic situations. And today she's here, she's gonna tell us about her new book, The Legacy He Left Me, her foundation, Love Life Now, and how she encourages men and women, I mean, all people really, but men especially, to have their own decided heart moments and take a pledge to not tolerate abuse against women any longer. Welcome. Thank you, Sonia and Hillary, the DH Effect, for having me. I appreciate you guys so much for for wanting to have this conversation and for creating space around the issue. So thank you. Oh my gosh, we are so honored to have you. Mm-hmm. And you know, for us, the a decided heart moment is when we have an experience and we stay there for a bit. We reflect on mm-hmm. that experience and then we decide, and this is the most important mm-hmm. to do something about it. Yeah. And in that outcome, we elevate our own selves somehow. And the other part of it, the effect is because of that action we took, we created an effect where we're expanding that decided heart moment to others and uplifting perhaps a community for you. It's a society. (laughs) Um, And we would love if you could just take, I don't, you know, for you and, and your story, you may have many decided heart moments, but perhaps you can summarize what got you to the leader and role model you are today. Wow. Moments. I think, um, so there were a couple of them and one formidably, it came a little later after I started Love Life Now Foundation and it was at the age of 35 where I am married and um, love my husband. It's a fantastic relationship. Nothing is perfect, but you know, we have our days, but it was at the age of 35 that I realized that I was still an individual that I had a responsibility to myself to make myself happy. I couldn't put that responsibility on anyone else. I had done that before. It got me nowhere. It gets nobody nowhere um, to put that sort of, you know, uh, job on someone else. And so once I realized that, I 
intentionally went about finding ways to find joy for me and what that meant. Because I had not before. Everything was put on the onus of someone else. Well, I had a bad day at work. How can you make me better? Mm. Um, Things aren't going well in this area. How can you make it better? And that was just not working. It had never worked. And so, you know, finding intentional ways to, 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 to bring joy to myself is something that I continue to just spread with everyone else. Um, and I can't tell you how many people that I meet uh, on a day-to-day basis, especially now touring with the book, that say, I never thought about me. I don't know what self-care looks like for me. And, you know, a lot of the times we hear that word self-care thrown about and it's, you know, really popular these days. Right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and, you know, some may think a lot of people think, well, you know, I don't have money to self-care. I, you know, I can't travel. And, and I tell folks, it doesn't take that oftentimes, oftentimes the best things that you can do for yourself are free, right? It could be meditating, it could be walking, it could be yoga, it could be exercise, it could be um, journaling, it could be praying, which is a favorite of mine, but there are just a bunch of things. And and so that for me, I think was one, a big decided heart moment. And the second was when I finally decided to leave this particular relationship that was full and rampant with abuse. And that was a hard choice to make. Again, the choosing of self. I don't know why we, especially as women, find it so hard to choose self sometimes, but it was hard to make that decision to find, and not even at that point, sort of leaving the relationship like full on. It was more so just choosing to seek help for myself and speak up for myself. And that that was really, 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 really hard. And so um, that then had an insane ripple effect on my life that led me here to running uh, Love Life Now Foundation and now writing a book, so. Well, and that's, can we take you all the way back? Because this is, it's so brave and it, it dawns on me that, you know, the, the first thing that you started with was, was this choice to show up in joy for yourself and to claim your own happiness. And it's interesting because we often talk about that as being, you know, are you a victim or a hero? And when right. we are passive in our lives, we are victims, but yet Mm -hmm. you really witnessed true, you know, witnessed, and then were a part of a situation, abusive situation as well. And you've broken this cycle of abuse. Can you take us all the way back to sort of this? And and also for our listeners who may not, what's the cycle of abuse thing that she's talking about all the way back to your childhood in Trinidad and, and how that sort of, you broke this cycle. Mm-hmm. And then so another hard thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was born in Trinidad and I lived there for 15 years of my life. And when I knew myself right around six, seven, eight years old, one of my first earliest memories is our father brutally abusing our mother. And I was one of five siblings, the middle child. And by the time I came around, I had two older siblings that were about seven years apart from me. They were two years apart from each other. So I come six, seven, eight years old, watching them get the brunt of the child abuse where our father would, you know, discipline them in very brutal ways, not even to the extent of what my mother um, endured, but bad, just enough. And I watched that and I kept saying like, why, why are they like each of them? Why are you doing things to make him this mad Mm -hmm. to do this to you? 
And so I wanted not to be on the receiving end on any of it, right? And so I decided very early on that I would do the things that I heard him telling the older ones to do. So go to school, you know, get good grades. If you're a girl, don't come home pregnant. I didn't know what that meant, but, <laughs> you know, I'm going to do it, you know, whatever that means. I'm going to get the chores right. I'm going to do extra good at the chores. I'm going to just be good. And, um, you know, watching that and experiencing the level of angst and pain that my mother especially went through, it was disheartening. Now, at the time, my father was, you know, well-to-do, lower, lower middle class, but we lived in a poor community. So for that level, he was doing well, right? And had a, and, you know, job and for the, working for the government, you know, was the only one in his family to be college educated. And, um, you know, for all intent purposes, had it made. But here he was being this monster behind closed doors and in public. He didn't care. And why didn't he care? Because other people in the same, in our community, they were doing the same thing to their wives or their spouses or their girlfriends. And so, you know, many and oftentimes when I saw, you know, sometimes when he was beating her in front of our house, I would say, my God, you know, these men that come out and witness and watch sometimes in horror about what he's doing to her, why aren't they stepping up? Why aren't they doing something to help? Like you respect him and you call him friend, right? And this is nine, 10 years old. I'm, I'm getting angry and I'm, I'm resenting them in that moment. I'm resenting him, our father in that moment. But then I also respected all of the good things about him. So he was charming. He was well-spoken, he was educated. Like I wanted to be all of those things. So there was this love-hate relationship between the dynamic um, of us. And then there was our mother, our mother who was caretaker, um, who was, you know, the one that made everything work, the one to fix it, whatever it was. And, but she was uneducated and she was financially dependent on our father. And oftentimes she would run and flee the, the situation, but then she would come back. And I would resent that. And I would resent the fact that she was uneducated. And I would resent the fact that she was solely dependent on him. Oftentimes I would get mad because it was like, why are you leaving, but then coming back? Like, why can't you stay gone so you don't get hurt anymore? Um, and so I took all of this in and, it, you know, essentially throughout my early teenagehood, I kept saying that would never be me. So I, I had it in my, my, my psyche that I would grow up to be a lawyer um, and prosecute men like my father. That was going to be my comeback because I physically can't take him on. I am deathly afraid of him because of how strict he was. Um, you know, there was no love in home. There was no hugs. There was no, I love you. You know, I was able to go to different homes in our, not, a, not our community, different communities that were even more, you know, well-to-do and see the level of, you know, love that was spread. So I knew that there was different. I watched TV. My, my onus of America, my takeaway from America at the time coming up in Trinidad was Saved by the Bell. <laughs> Saved by the Bell, <laughs> Sesame Street, yeah. the Cosbys, right? You know, law, law, um, what is it? LA Law. Oh my God, LA Law. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a uh, way flashback. <laughs> Blair Underwood. Can we take a minute, please? Yeah. Blair yes, Underwood. Yes, we can. Yes. Okay. We can. If you don't know who he is, just go and Google 1900 <laughs> Blair Underwood. Okay. And so, you know, watching all of these great characters and Claire Huxtable on the Cosby shows to be specific, you know, wanting to oh, be ever. them, right? And that power that they possess and that presence that they possess. I wanted that. 
And so I emulated all of that, right, coming up. And I continually said I would never be my mother because I, I didn't, we didn't have an, a term for what the issue of domestic violence was called. We, we just knew that it was bad. We knew that it was wrong. And the only form of it that we knew was physical. We, I didn't account for verbal and emotional and the mental abuse that my mother endured throughout the years. And so um, by the time I was uh, 14, my grandparents, who I would write letters to, they lived in the States since the 70s, um, I would send them letters about the way that, you know, how I was doing at school. And they would often say, oh, we would love to have you come out. And I just dreamed of that day. And then that day came when he, they wrote a letter to our father asking if he would allow me to come to the States to finish high school. And he did. I su surprised, surprisingly, he let me go. And so I left my siblings and my mother and father behind, came to the States, lived with them for about three years. I went to high school until I graduated, did very well academically. But then by the end of three years, because I wasn't a student visa, I had to go back to Trinidad for two more years to get my permanent residency status at the time. And so I go back, I'm now 18 years old, and it wasn't even about two weeks. I remember our father, um, you know, his body language changed mm -hmm. and the way his tone changed. And that was all too familiar about something that was getting ready to happen mm -hmm. against our mother. Mm -hmm. And it was for something yes. insanely always simple. Um, and his, you know, deep and loud and angry. And I remember him leaving the kitchen where he was yelling at the top of his lungs and coming toward the living room where I sat and our, my mother and father's bedroom was right off the living room. And I remember saying, there's no way in hell that I'm going to let him put his hands on her anymore. Okay. And so I'm 18. My older siblings who were seven years apart, they're also older. older. Our oldest brother who, um, again, received the, the brunt of the child abuse, couldn't they he's he began to butt heads he was now physically stronger taller and he physically let our father know that at any time you came at him again he would he would handle him right he knew violence right he grew up in violence and this was his way to respond our sister she received her last brutal attack when she was about 16 and she fled she ran hot-footed it and never turned back um, she went on to, to live with her boyfriend and they had a, a child together, got married all the whole night. So that being said, um, it's now myself and my two younger siblings who are in the house with our mother. Um, the, 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 the one after me is two years younger and he's also six, now 16 and taller and bigger. Um, and our oldest brother lived next door in a, a house that we also owned that we rented out, you know, different rooms to it. So he lived in one of the rooms because again, they couldn't coexist. And so I remember he come, my father coming into the living room and him yelling at our mother and something just in me scared as hell, but still like, you're not going to do this to her. So I went up to him and I said, you can say what you want, but don't you dare put your hands on her. And I remember thinking like, what the hell did I just do? <laughs> and say to this man, is he going to slap me? Is yeah. he going to like, you know, come back at me? But he didn't. And then I remember, okay, Laverne, you didn't get attacked. Now you need backup because you can't handle this on your own. So I yell out to my older brother and I said, come on over. And he came and I remember him also reiterating, say what you want, but don't touch her. And he feared him, right? More than he feared me. And he got, I, he got angry. And he stormed out of the house. He didn't come back till later that night, you know, drunk. He was upset, you know, and his, his drunkenness was not to be belligerent. Whenever he got drunk, it was more, you know, talk, you know, and then fall asleep. And so he came in the house and he said, I can't believe my children, my own children. He was looking at this as like punishment, like his children stood up to him for their mother. 
He couldn't understand how his children who he raised with such strictness would come at him in this way. He couldn't see it. And so um, from that day on, Hillary and Sonia, it was because he never put his hands on her while we were around. We're not sure what happened when we weren't, but when we were around that, that never transpired. And so two years later, as I mentioned, my permanent residency um, came through, but my grandparents had also filed for our mother and my two younger siblings. And so that meant all of their permanent residencies came through. And um, my father finally allowed and let my mother leave because he believed, I know I look back on this now, I believe that he believed that he knew that he was losing power and control over her right? The level of power and control that he had had over her life, which is what this issue surrounds, right? Power and control over someone else, right? Their behaviors, what they do, how they dress, what to say, how to do their hair, like all of that. And if you go against that, including other, you know, traits that they possess, not victims, that they possess, his jealousy and his angst. She was a beautiful woman. And so, you know, she had many people that looked at her and he resented that. And that was his own insecurities that lived in him, his demons that he learned from his parents um, that he then brought into this relationship. So my mother was finally able to, to, to go, you know, to leave and come to the States. And this was a whole new life for her, right? So she started fresh, but it was hard for those years that she lived in the States I remember every other day, sometimes every day, she would buy back then it was phone cards, prepaid phone cards that you could call internationally with. And she was making sure every day she checked in with our father. And, you know, at one point I said, mommy, you don't have allegiance to him anymore. You don't have to check in with him every day to let him know where you were today, Mm -hmm. that you're leaving the house now, because this was behavior that was ingrained in her. This is what she knew. She was married to this man for over 30 years. Okay, they met when they were 19 and the abuse ensued very shortly thereafter. So, you know, um, it took a while for her to mentally get become undone from from even even though she was thousands and thousands of miles away. People think when you leave these relationships that it's done, that you don't have to work. But there's 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 emotions that you have tangled that, you know, you still have to get unwrapped from. So you know, I'm here, she's here, my two younger siblings are here. And I started going to Suffolk University, which is a college here in Boston, um, at night for advertising and marketing. I, I decided to go, not go for a law degree. I was two years now behind my peers because I'm 21. Um, and I just said, you know what, I'm pursuing a law degree and trying to catch up with these, you know, younger people, or people that already had a two-year head start, let me, I don't want to do it. So let me make the, the playing, uh, ground even. And so I started, uh, I went for advertising marketing and I started at an entry level company um, in corporate America. And I thought I had it all together. I'm you know, working at my job, junior secretary at this company. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing my thing. I'm more like my father right now in that, in that sense. Like I, I thought I had it together. And so at this particular company that I'd started working for, there was this gentleman that I would see every day on the upper level, I was a, a, a junior secretary for the for the vice president of customer service for this um, retail company. But on the, the, the floor that I would go to often, there were all the customer service representatives. And one of them tried to get my attention for a couple of weeks so well. Um, and I finally gave him the time of day and gave him my phone number. And we started dating shortly thereafter. 
And for about three months, things were great. I kept pinching myself because I'm like, wow, what did I do to deserve this type of relationship? Like this was my first adult relationship and it was like out of a Hallmark movie. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in a, you know, lavish dates, restaurant dinners, walks in the park, walks on the beach, picnics, random, him showing up impromptu to wherever I was with like flowers. And it was just fantastic. And I'm like, Jesus, this is great. Three months went by, things were going well. Um, unfortunately, within those three months, there were things and big red flags that I had missed. Um, people often think that the issue of domestic violence, you know, just pops up because, you know, they slap you out of nowhere and they keep slapping you. No, there are behaviors that they are grooming you with over a period of time so that by the time the full on attack, whether it's verbal or emotional or physical comes on, you're like, okay, this is where it's at. And that was, I was no exception. And so over the three months where I thought things were fantastic, it was because, yes, he was giving me a lot of attention, but it was unnecessary attention. A lot of the times he would call me four, five, six, seven times before I even got to work. Why? Mm -hmm. Because he wants to make sure I am where I say I am. I miss that. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes he would, you know, kind of get irate that I was on the phone for a long period of time with either a girlfriend or sometimes a guy friend. He would get a little jealous. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should cut the conversation short. I'm dating this guy. It's disrespectful to talk on the phone with a guy friend that long. You know, and all these little things that over a period of time, it was like, okay, I accept that. I need to change that. And it was all me. I was always the problem, right? Um, and again, he wasn't coming on to me like, you need to stop talking to this guy. No, it was, I mean, you said we were on a date. Like, why are you, or, or no, you, you said that we were about to go out on a date. Why are you taking that phone call? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's, I'm going to just put that away. Oh, so um, why does he keep calling you like twice a week? Oh, well, that's my friend. Well, I, we've known each other for like a, since high school. Oh, maybe I shouldn't. Right. And so you, you discount all of these things because everything else is great and you don't want to lose that. You don't think lightning is going to strike twice. So you go, you keep on going on this particular morning that at the three month mark, while we were dating, he called me um, a, a number of times. But what had happened is that I'd started suffering from allergies. I did not know what that was. I thought it was a really bad cold. So I called the office and I told him I had now, I was now working for another company and he was still at the old company. And so, um, you know, I told him I'd come in the next day and I hung up the phone and I went to bed. I was really groggy. So I went to bed, put the phone, you know, my, I think my phone was on, my phone was definitely on vibrate. And I didn't hear it because I was in and out of sleep. When I woke up, I heard that the, the phone was vibrating. It, it woke me up. And I answered the phone and he said, what are you doing home? And I said, I am feeling so sick. I said, do you want to come bring me some chicken soup? And he said, chicken soup, very irate. And he hung up the phone. And within 15 minutes, like I said, you know what? I can't even deal with this. I'm going to go back to bed. 15 minutes, he's at my house. He's ringing the doorbell. So this is during the week, obviously. People are gone to work, school. I'm the only one in the house on the first floor of this three family home. And he rings the doorbell and he brushes past me and goes into the room that I occupy. And he started rummaging through my stuff, looking under the bed, behind the curtain, just very paranoid, jealous behavior and accusing me, asking me who was here. That's why you stayed home, didn't you? Yeah. Somebody was here. And to that extent, again, just very paranoid, um, distrusting behavior of me. And then I'm sitting on the edge of the bed and I'm saying to myself, I'm getting scared because I've never seen this level of 
volatility from him before. And I said, oh my God, you're scaring me. I said, please know that I'm, I only want to be with you. I said, I had nobody here. Um, and the more I talked, the more I really thought. He then came up to me as I'm sitting at the edge of the bed and slapped me so hard that I saw stars. Mm. And then he stormed out and left. And so I'm sitting there and hands, you know, my hand holding my cheek, tears are streaming down my face. And I'm trying to figure out what did I, what did I do to, to make him even believe that I would cheat on him. <laughs> and I'm trying to, and then about five minutes later, I was like, no, 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 no. I didn't do anything here. I told the truth. I said, you know what? I'm done. I knew what had happened to me was in relation to what my mother had went through, but I discounted it as it wasn't that bad. And you know what? I'm going to take control of the situation because I'm going to be done with him. Nobody's going to treat me like that ever again. And I went to New York that particular weekend. I, I lived in Boston. So I took a trip to New York and decided that I was going to spend the weekend. So I rented a motel. I went, I shopped, I got my hair done and more shopped and ate and had a really good time. I was really trying to get him out of my system because three months of really, you know, what I thought was great that then ended in this big thing. Um, it was hard to not to say, well, you know, I never want to see him again. I was really trying to really dissect what had happened, know that I, to myself that I wasn't going to go back, but then also, you know, get him out of my system. I came back that Sunday night and my younger brother, who's two years apart from me, met me at the door and he said, you're pretty popular around here. I said, why? He said, such and such has been looking for you. And he said, he left something for you. And I went into the bedroom and it was two dozen purple roses, my favorite color. Mm -hmm. Didn't know that it was the, the awareness color for domestic violence at the time, but, mm -hmm. you know, I was wooed by the, the level of thought. Um, that he had put into this, you know, apology. And, you know, because with this, these flowers were a card that read, I'm sorry, I miss you. I love you. Call me. And then I turned on my phone. Um, I had, a, you know, a prepaid cell phone at the time. And those, those, those plans back then, I always joke about this because the plans back then, we know nights and weekends were free and after seven, right? Yep. <laughs> so, I had turned off my phone not to hear from him, but also to save my minutes because I left on a Friday. So um, when I turned it on, there were all these messages from him. And, you know, he was very apologetic. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to give him a call. I'm going to hear him out. And I called him back. And in that, you know, conversation, I could hear that he was tearful. I could hear that he was sounding like he was sorry. But even in that moment, he then deflected the blame about what happened onto me. He mm. said in part that, and I won't, you know, quote him, but he said in part that, you know, I love you so much that you make me do these. Wow. You made me do that to you. Mm. And I took that. I'm 21, right? This man is saying to me again, I'm the cause of that. And then I started to second guess myself. I said, you know what? Maybe I should have called him that morning. We do talk every morning. You know, maybe I had a part to play in this for him thinking that I, you know, was home doing something, you know, mischievous. And I took that. I took the guilt and I ran with it. Oftentimes people ask, how do victims get into these types of relationships? And that's how easy it can be, Hillary and Sonia. I mean, when you've lived in that type of environment, and at that point, I didn't even really accredit it to that, right? I wasn't even thinking about that. I think more so it was, again, that building of this behavior and grooming me over a period of three months that at the time when the big thing happened and the apology, the elaborate apology came, it was like, you know what? You are overreacting. 
it was just a slap. You know, later down, maybe less than a week later, uh, you know, I said in my, in my, I was questioning myself and saying, what the hell? I accepted that apology, but you know what? It's not that bad. My mom, I'm, you know, at least I'm not getting beaten with a machete. At least he's not, you know, you know, breaking beer bottles and using them on me. At least he's not punching me while I'm on the ground, you know, and he apologized and he said, he's going to change. And guess what? He will, right? This, these are the lengths that he went to, to apologize. That's how easy these relationships can start, you know? And here I was far removed from who I thought my mother was weak and uneducated. I was not that. <laughs> I was on my way to becoming more of like my father. And yet here I am in the same situation too. So for the next almost two years, the abuse upped. He upped the ante every single time. It moved from being slapped in the face to physical punches um, about the body, um, strangulation, choking, uh, yelling. I mean, the most nasty verbal assaults when he got angry. And I kept that. I kept that to myself because I absolutely didn't want anybody to know what was happening to me. There was no way that I was going to be associated with being weak and downtrodden. Um, I kept it from my family. I kept it from my job. I kept it from people at school until the, the last night that he um, attacked me. Um, this particular night, he had come in. I'm now living in a studio apartment and he came in very irate. And again, that whole demeanor and that tone change, I recognized it in him. And I said, you know what? Here we go again, right? Um, and my only thought was, how long is it going to be this time, right? And, you know, what is he going to get? What is he going to blame me for now? And he came in very irate and he was accusing me once again that, you know, I had, I had, I had spent this almost two years of this relationship proving and trying to prove to him how much I love only him, right? Trying to, you know, take all the guilt as much as I can, watching him and hearing him say that he'll change and that never happening, but hoping that it would you know, the person that I saw within the first three months would show up again. And clearly that was not going to happen, right? I could never help him with his insecurities and his problems. So um, this particular night he comes in and he's irate and, you know, I said, oh, here we go. And he starts rummaging through, always looking for a shred of evidence that I'm cheating on him and never could find it, right? So he comes through this, these, these stack of books that I that had moved with me um, over the years. And he he starts shaking one uh, by Terry McMillan, Waiting to Exhale, um, that movie with Whitney, Whitney Houston. And so he shook it and out popped this picture. And he picked up the picture and he looked at it and he looked at me and then he flung the picture at me and then he stormed off. And he went into the kitchen and I hear him like rummaging through the drawers. And I picked up the picture and I looked at it and I died inside because it was a picture of me and my then ex-boyfriend in Trinidad sitting on the beach, hugged up on the sand, looking very happy. And I knew what his mindset would be in terms of that. I tried to explain to him as he's in the kitchen rummaging through drawers that it was an old picture, that it had moved with me, that it had meant nothing. He came back in the room for the first time with a weapon, with a knife. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, he said, you've been playing me this entire time, haven't you? He said, what have you been having phone sex with this guy? And that just very, just nasty accusations. Again, the more I tried to appease him, the more irate he got. And he said, I'm going to slit your throat and I, nobody's going to find you. 
And I believed him. At that point, I am isolated from family and friends. Um, and then, you know, my job, I go to work. Yeah. But how long are they going to take before they realize I am not coming to work? Right. First day, no show. Call me. Right. These are the things that are running through my head. And so I had a day bed in, in the bedroom and he straddled me on the day bed uh, with the knife and he started pressing the knife up against my throat with the other hand pinning my, my shoulder down. And he starts yelling and then he put down the knife and then he slapped me and then he started strangling me and then he spat in my face and then he strangled me again and I like, passed out. And I came through at one point and he's punching me about the body. And then he got up and he starts pacing the floor back and forth, yelling, profanities, accusations. And then he came back again with the knife and he said, I have a, you know, continue saying like very crazy things. I'm going to slit your throat. I, you know, maybe I should stab you. Maybe I should, maybe I should peel off your skin, you know, mm. piece by piece. And, and. And so this started at it like nine o'clock the night before and went till about two o'clock the next morning until he just stopped and then laid down next to me like nothing had happened. And what did I do? I lay down next to him. Where am I going to go? I live on the third floor of a building. If I run, he's going to catch me. Um, so I whimpered quietly until I whimpered no more. Still up. Until about four o'clock that morning, I felt the sharpest pains from this attack. It felt like a dagger trying to pierce through my skin. So I said, okay, Laverne, you have a choice. You can lay here. You've watched enough Law and Order and Lifetime to know that something is terribly wrong inside. So I could be internally bleeding. Um, I could have a bone broken. Um, what do you do? Do you get up and go get help? Or do you lay here for him to wake up and probably start again, right? Because that was the that was a level of attack I had never experienced before. So I, for, for the very first time, chose me. And I chose to go to the hospital. I quietly got up and I put on a pair of jeans and a top and a little cardigan. And I limped downstairs to the, to the front of the building where there was always cabs because it was directly next to a train station. And I hopped in the first cab and I asked him to take me to the, to the um, neighborhood hospital, which was about five, less than five minutes away driving. There were only two lights between the, 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 um, the, where I lived and the hospital. And at the first light, it was red. It's like four o'clock in the morning, right? At the red light, my abuser pulls up to the next to the cab, realized that I was gone and starts yelling, get out the cab in, very, in a very choice manner. Get out the cab. I need to talk to you. Where are you going? Come back here. I turned to the driver and I said, I am begging you. If you have to run this red light, run it. I said, because if you put me out of this cab, I'm as much as dead. Okay. That's my ex-boyfriend and he's trying to kill me. He listened to me. He said not a word to me. And he ran the red light. Wow. When he ran the red light, my abuser starts drag racing the cab. It's a two lane road. Mm. He's dragging. When he realized that the cab took a left into the hospital, he sped away. I didn't understand that I had a lot of power in that moment. I could have easily gone into the ER and said, this man, that man, license plate XYZ, almost tried to kill me. Um, I didn't. I didn't want that. I didn't know that I was able to do that. I was afraid. I went into the ER and I told the triage nurse that I had fell in the shower. Coupled with, so the blame and the shame, coupled with the potential of him coming for me if I spoke up, all gelled together. 
with me, by me saying that. They did x-rays. I told them that I hurt here and I hurt there. And when the ER doctor came into the room, the first thing out of his mouth was, who did this to you? Wow. He said, these injuries aren't consistent with you falling in the shower. So who did this to you? I can get you help. Wait a minute. Help? What does that even mean? Mm. It means so much to victims when you present these things in these moments at that point. Because you are deathly afraid, as I said, of the unknown. You don't know if he's going to kill you, follow through on the threats. You don't know um, if your people are going to find out and what they're going to say about you. You don't know. For me, it was all of that. So I, I was afraid that the police were going to get involved and they would come to my building. I, I lived amongst other professionals. I don't want people seeing that I'm going through this drama, right? I don't want my job finding out why potentially I was sometimes, not potentially, but sometimes he would show up at the job and instead of going to lunch, he would accost me for what I was wearing. So the dress was too short. My hair was different. Who are you trying to pick up in the office? You know, he strangled me sometimes, yell at me. And I'd go back upstairs to the bathroom, clean myself up and have to go back to my desk like nothing had happened. And I was too afraid of them finding out. I was afraid of losing my job because I was afraid that they would say that you're bringing drama to the job, right? As a black woman, I was one of only two of them in the office and many men and one other woman, <laughs> right? Who was my boss, who owned the company. And I just didn't think that they would understand, right? And I kept it, I kept that. I was afraid that my, my school, my professors were going to potentially find out why I was on my way to flunking my first year of college. Okay. There were many group assignments that I would have to be a part of. And if there were guys involved in that group, he would call and yell at me, right? You know, why are you there past four o'clock? Well, we're working late on this assignment. No, I need you to come out now because I don't know what's going on. And I had to leave the assignment. My grades suffered. Individually, I couldn't focus. So there were so many sort of parameters around why I just needed nobody to know. And then I also thought that I would be, you know, geared toward going to a shelter, which to me was a big open room with beds with a bunch of women that I didn't know. That's what I knew of shelter. I didn't understand that domestic violence shelters are not like that, right? They, everybody has their own room. They can only take up to seven to 12 families because they're normally housed in big, you know, undisclosed location, lo, um, located houses where you share the living room or the, you know, the common areas. Um, but everybody is, has their own privacy. I didn't know that. And so I begged and I, I fessed up to the doctor, but I begged him not to say anything, not to call the police, not to get anybody. I don't want help um, because I just didn't understand. I didn't even want to know what that meant. So I went home to my apartment, not understanding that it was the most dangerous time for me. Leaving is the most dangerous time in these relationships. Oftentimes when you hear that she was getting ready to leave and take the kids and he killed her, she was getting ready to leave and take the kids and he killed her and the kids. She was getting ready to leave and he killed himself and her, right? There are all these scenarios that play out in the news or you read in a newspaper story, um, you know, and oftentimes, sometimes you hear, right? There's a specific show for it. He was getting to, ready to leave and she snapped, right? Because this goes both ways. Unfortunately, 90% of the time men are perpetrated. This happens to men too, one in every seven. And so, you know, I went home thinking that it was done. And for two weeks, again, getting out of, out of my system, I also thought that I was done, but I still loved him. I just wanted the abuse to stop. Mm -hmm. 
and not understanding that I, I didn't have, um, he, he would believe that me leaving was a threat to him. So he called up two weeks later, like nothing had happened and said that he was coming over. I said, no, 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 no. I said, we are through. What do you mean? I said, I had my locks changed. You almost killed me two weeks ago. He said, man, you know, you looked for some of that. Again, deflecting blame onto me. Okay. That reiterated to me in that moment that I needed to stay gone. Right. And um, again, he get, became very irate over the phone and he said, I'm not hearing that. Right. Because how dare you try to leave me? I'm going to show you. Right. He showed up at my apartment building and waited for uh, someone to come out because you had to get bussed up. You come in the main door, but you need to please for the second door. And he waited for someone to exit and then he entered the building. And the next thing I know, he was knocking at my door deathly afraid, I begged him to leave because I knew how mad he was over the phone. And I knew that he was angry that I had dared to, to tell him no. Um, he started banging the door with his physical body and saying that he needed to talk to me. And I said, no, you don't wanna talk. I know what you want to do. And he said, I'm giving you one last chance. And I said, no, I'm not opening the door. I'm gonna call the police if you don't leave. He said, you're right. He left. And about five, six, seven minutes, he came back. And then he started pounding the door with his physical body. So now I'm holding the door with my little tiny body, <laughs> trying to keep him from busting in. And I'm hearing like, like a scraping on the other side of the door. And then he's pounding. And I said, okay, Laverne, you got to put all fears aside and call the cops now. I reached for my landline and it was dead. I had no minutes on my cell phone at that moment because I typically would replenish my minutes at the end of the day. And he knew that he knew it was like Saturday evenings that I would go out and replenish my minutes. But I remembered someone in passing saying that you could still make emergency phone calls, even if you have no minutes on your phone. Mm. So I prayed to God that that would work. I dialed 911 and the dispatcher answered 911. How, how, how can I help you? No, what's your emergency? And I said, somebody still not giving him up. Mm. somebody's trying to break into my apartment and she continued to ask me questions you know where do I live you know um do I know do I do I have any clue who this person is and the entire time he's still banging and scraping when he heard that I was talking continuously he said in the very early part you're bluffing and he continued to scrape but then when he realized that I continued to give information he realized that I really was talking to someone and he fled. The next knock I heard on my door was Boston police open up. When I opened the door, they said that, um, they said, I said, I was trying to call you guys from my landline, but my landline became dead. And they said, where's your phone lines? I said, it's in the basement of the building. They came back and they said that he had cut the phone lines in the basement and he was using something like a crowbar to get in between the locks because there were wood shavings at the bottom of the floor from where he mm. was trying to get through. And so he had all intent purposes of getting into that apartment to, to do me harm and I narrowly escaped. So now he knew that he physically couldn't come to me because I would call someone, right? But he waited about another week, right? And these periods that he was waiting, it was because he was waiting to see if I had given him up. Was any heat coming at his door? Was the police coming knocking at his door? Was the, the, the brothers going to show up? Wow. None of that ever happened. So he would give it time and then come back again. And so by the third set of time that he, time that he came at me, it was because he began to stalk me. He knew he couldn't physically come to me. So he was leaving the derogatory notes on my car. He would show up at places where he knew that I was um, going to be at. 
and just stare. Um, and that's when a girlfriend of mine said, who lived in the area that I also lived and trusted her to some degree. She didn't know the extent, but she said, girl, you need a restraining order. Um, I'm 23 years old. And as you can imagine, walking into court, a courthouse for the first time to file a restraining order, that whole process in itself was daunting. Um, but it kept him away. It finally kept him away. I had got a year restraining order and he stayed away, but many victims do not get that chance, right? Um, oftentimes, again, she was getting ready to leave and, you know, she was filing a restraining order. She was ready to file divorce. And we often hear the stories, but it's because these things aren't just popping up on your news screen or in the newspaper, you know, for something that you read for two to three minutes or hear. These are things that are brewing behind closed doors for many, many months, many weeks, um, and, you know, to, to say, oftentimes when you hear the neighbors in these stories, they say, I never knew that this was happening. He was such mm -hmm. a nice man. And so these things, you know, you're missing the facts because you want to. Mm -hmm. Domestic violence is everybody's business. And we have a responsibility to learn about what the red flags are. So you can not, note those, not just in your own relationships, but outside of your day-to-day um, -day relationships as well. And so I say all that to say, I escaped narrowly for the next 10 years. I took um, time to regroup, find myself again, um, and um, just get back to the business of me. But it wasn't until 20, 2010 that some girlfriends of mine had dared me to take part in a beauty pageant locally. And I said, no way am I doing that. It's more walking on the heels, walking in heels and dresses. And I know, granted, I like dresses. I just wasn't into the whole pageant thing, right? And they said, what are you afraid of falling on the stage? You're too chicken. I said, don't dare me. I took the dare. I, I took part in the pageant. I ended up winning the thing, not even taking it seriously, right? And then I had to go on to the nationals in LA to take part in those uh, in that leg of the competition as well. So now I'm taking it a little bit more seriously. I end up winning again. And so I have these two back-to-back -back titles that I have to pick a platform for. And domestic violence was an easy, easy, easy choice given my history with the issue. I began to learn more about it. Um, I wanted to volunteer at a shelter. Um, but that meant I had to take a domestic violence 101 course. And I said to myself initially, what the hell can you, they teach me about this issue? Like I lived this, right? I, I was a child witness to it. I'm a, you know, I was a young adult in this thing. There's no way I go into this course and I swear to you, I was blown away. Ah! I didn't know the different types of abuse that existed. I didn't know it affected LGBTQ men, um, you know, uh, give various terms that you, you know, had never heard about before, gaslighting, emotional abuse. Um, it just, it just blew me away. And I, and that fire was lit right there. After that course, I said, I'm going to do everything that I can and put on initiatives in my community to get people in no, in the know. I didn't know, you know, resources that exist, existed. And so for the year, I put on all these initiatives like the Healathon, like the White Ribbon Night Gala. Um, that was just, you know, a community White Ribbon Day at the time. And once a year was up, I really wanted to continue this work. I knew I wasn't a pageant girl, but I really wanted to continue the work um, that I had started. And that's where Love Life Now Foundation was formed. So here we are 10 years later in November. Um, and I'm just so excited to still be, you know, to be privileged, not only to have a voice, um, but to be doing this work um, and, and it, so it, it being cathartic. Yeah. Yeah. So powerful. I think Laverne, it's, first of all, thank you. Thank you so yeah. much for, for showing us the, the, what vulnerability mm -hmm. is your most vulnerable times. And mm -hmm. it's so hard for us to imagine when you say the years, 18 to 23, I mean, all of this, oh. 
I really, so we, we think that there needs to be a part two. Oh my God. I'm like getting, I'm so shaking. My voice. <laughs> I know, no, I know, I know. Just, um, I want to come and hug her because she's been oh, through so much and, you and I'm like cheering it. for yes, you. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> Cause we know the part two. Right. Yeah. Um, I do yeah. want to take time. We are, this is only going to be a part one. We're going to have a part two you know, the legacy he left me such a powerful book and more of this story. And again, we'll unfold the triumph in our next, in our next edition episode yes, yes, you yes, know, with, yes. with Laverne, but it is so powerful. And I, I find myself thinking, you know, first of all, again, the courage, but I also, you know, hopefully you've heard it enough times, but you did not deserve any of that. And I'm so oh. glad that you were able to get to a point where you could choose you. Yes. Yes. And then, so we're, and then the, and then the work just in that mm-hmm. I choose me yeah, I and choose. Then 10 years later. Oh, I have to still teach it. I have to still choose me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And be intentional. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely looking forward to part two. Um, I think, you know, a lot of the times people get to the other side and say, oh, okay, I've made it. And I'm just okay. going to hold on to that. I'm just going to hold on to what happened to me. And I will leave this here is that, you know, what happened to you doesn't belong to you. You need to give it back. And that's part two, right? Thank you so much. I mean, everyone, please stay tuned for our part two episode with Laverne Gordon. We are going to talk about the amazing work that she has done um, once she had these decided heart moments. Stay tuned, everyone. Part two with Laverne Gordon. You got to subscribe to our YouTube channel to make sure that you know when that part two is coming. Laverne, we are going to have all of the links um, included on how to reach out to you. However, we're challenging our audience to know the work that you do. You have to stay tuned for part two. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.